around the table. We've been talking about meals with Jesus for the last few weeks. This is the last one of that series. And while we didn't have a round table like that when I was a kid, we had a rectangular table, not the proportions like this, but a rectangular table where our whole family ate every meal together. From as early as I can remember until I left home to go to university, we all ate together at the kitchen table. My mom would sit here. My dad would sit here. My brother Rod sat over here, and I sat down there. It was like that for 18 years. We, we always ate together. Three meals a day. We'd have breakfast down there. My dad would make the, the porridge. He would do a Bible reading with us at the table. We'd come home from school at lunch. Our school was right nearby. You know, when we were in elementary school, we were in high school. It was always just a few blocks away, and we would, my brother and I would both come home for lunch. My dad worked at home, and my mom, my mom, like all moms back in the 1950s and the 60s, she looked after everybody. And so we would gather at that kitchen table, and we would eat together. And we'd talk about everything. We'd talk about school. We'd talk about what plans we had for the weekend, difficult assignments we had on doing our, our homework, sometimes issues that were troubling to mom or dad or to Rod or I. Sometimes there was some discussion about what we had done wrong. When I was about 17, there was a girl. She was in our youth group, and, and we were all friends, but I wanted to be more than friends with this girl. And it was a bit of a problem because she was a year older than I was, and she had told another friend that she just couldn't see herself dating anybody who was younger than her. And so we kind of danced around this relationship. We really liked each other. We really cared about each other. But, you know, I was a year younger. And so I was in this kind of agony that only teenagers can endure. Anyway, she'd gone off to college in Toronto, and she was coming home for a long weekend. And I had this idea. She was going to come by train. And so we were at home for lunch, and I had just taken my knife and had a slab of bread in my hand and reached across and taken some butter and was about to butter my bread when I asked my folks, just casually, if I could have the car on Friday afternoon to go over and pick up Phyllis at the train station. And my dad, who's sitting right there, clears his throat and says, Gordon, I don't know why you think you should have a day off school just to go and see your girlfriend. Oh, man. Could he have said anything worse? I mean, how was he to know that I was in love with this girl, and but she wasn't my girlfriend. And, and, you know, he was a dad. A dad, for Pete's sake. Is there anybody who knows less about teenage angst than a dad? Tell me, guys. Yeah, there. They, all of you can, you know this experience, and probably the dads know, too. He had no idea. 
he had said the completely wrong thing to me. And there I was. It was like he poured gasoline on my, on my flickering flame of frustration. There's three F's there. Flickering, flickering flame of frustration. I exploded. It was more than I could take. And I, I left to my feet and I said, she's not my girlfriend and hurled the knife on the floor and then stomped up the stairs to my bedroom where I immediately felt like a complete and utter fool. <sighs> what did I, you know, you just lose it. It was just like a fuse had gone off. So after a few moments, I crept down the stairs, back into the kitchen, apologized, picked my knife up off the floor. But you know, apologizing, apologizing for losing your temper doesn't make everything just right, just like that. It was very, very quiet, very quiet as we sat around the table. And I, I, didn't, I, I didn't know how to talk about this. How, how do you tell your family about your failed love life over lunch? It just, just isn't done. And, and you know, I, I created this horrible moment. All you could hear was the sound of cutlery scraping against plates. How are we going to get beyond this? I, I, I created this awful situation. And then all of a sudden, I felt this tap on my head. And I, I said, what was that? I, like, had water dripped from the ceiling or something? And everybody looked at me. And I put my hand up. And it was the butter that had been on my knife. When I'd hurled the knife on the floor like this, the butter had gone to the ceiling where it had stuck just ever so slightly while gravity did its job until it dropped on my head. Everybody laughed. It was okay. And, and, and I felt forgiven. I think I'd forgiven myself. That was what the difference was with the easing of that moment. I think I even got the car on that Friday to go pick up Phyllis. But you know, that relationship never turned out to anything. There was another girl in my youth group who I did fall in love with and who did like me, and her name was Karen. And she's down in the nursery right now with the kids. <laughs> There's something about when we eat together. Maybe it's the, the small gestures of passing the salt or taking another helping of scalloped potatoes, taking a drink of the coffee that helps to punctuate, to act, to lubricate the discussion. It's, it, it, it makes it possible to even talk about hard things while you eat, while you talk together. There's a whole bunch of stories in the Bible that we've been hearing over the last few weeks about Jesus at, at various meals with other people. Some of the Pharisees, there's the Last Supper. It, it, there's lots of them. Today we're, we're going to talk about the last of those stories. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together this morning and for the, the story we're going to look at in a moment. Help us to hear what you want to say to us through all of this. Move amongst us with your Holy Spirit. Guide us in the things that I say and the things that we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. 
We're going to read from the last chapter of John. I'm just going to read it from the screen. So it's from John 21, 3 to 19. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net into because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. And so Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When Simon had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you, Jesus said. Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. <clears throat> I love this passage. It's probably my, my favorite story in the Gospels. It's, there's so much more there than meets the, meets the eye. It's, it's just a fantastic story to me. For Simon, it's, it's the climax of a long story arc that began in the beginning of John. You know, while all the Gospels are really the story of Jesus. In all of them, there is a subplot, which is the story of the, the spiritual evolution of Simon, Simon Peter. 
In John, the first time we meet Simon is in the first chapter. His brother, Andrew, has just come back from a day walking with Jesus. He's just met him. He was introduced to him by, by John the Baptist. And, and Andrew is so excited. I can just see him grab, running, searching through the town where they're staying, trying to find Simon. And he says, Simon, Simon, you can't believe this. I've, we found the Messiah. And I can see him just dragging him by his sleeve and through the streets, trying to bring him to introduce him to Jesus. And at the same time, tell him about all what I've experienced today, breathlessly just sharing all of this. And then, and then, and then, and then when they arrive in front of Jesus, two out of breath young men, Jesus looks at Simon and says, you're Simon, son of John. You shall be Cephas which is Aramaic, for what we know is Peter, which is Greek, for what we know is rock. What would prompt Jesus, who's just met this man, to rename him Peter the Rock? What did he see in him? Was there something that struck him right there and then about the character of Simon? In Matthew's Jesus story, in the middle of it, he tells this, this piece about Jesus taking the disciples on a kind of a, a retreat. They go north of Galilee, quite a ways, to an area known as Caesarea Philippi. And there's just, there's no crowds around them. There's no teaching or anything. It's just the disciples and Jesus. And Jesus and, and the disciples have this conversation about who do People say, I am. And there's some various comments. And then Jesus asks them all, who do you say I am? And Simon, Simon right away pipes up. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and said, blessed are you, Simon. For this is not something that's come to you from flesh and blood, but has been revealed to you by my Father in heaven. On this rock, you are Peter. On this rock, I shall build my church. On this rock, I shall build my church. I think Peter took all this rock stuff really seriously, really personally. Jesus had called him his rock. And so he was, you know, what is a rock? A rock is hard and and stable, and, and, you know, the wise man built his house upon the rock. Uh, the, the foolish man built his house upon the sand, and the floods washed it away. He would be a rock. He would be firm. He would be constant. He would be solid. He would be Jesus' right-hand man. He would be there when Jesus needed him. He would be a protector. He would be a, a guide. He would do whatever was needed. He would be the right-hand man to Jesus. That's what he strove to be, of course, until he failed. And he did fail rather miserably. Yeah, but at another meal where he you know, was brought to his attention about this failure, the Last Supper. And Jesus has been telling them about trying to explain to them about what's going to happen, and they're not understanding. And, and Simon says, you know, 
you don't need to go anywhere without me. I'll be there. I'll go. Even if it takes you, means I have to die for you, I'll be there. And Jesus looks right at him and says, really, Simon? You will do that? I tell you, Simon, that before the night is out, before the cock crows at dawn, you will even deny that you know me three times. That must have been quite a blow to, to Simon, to his confidence, to the sense of identity as the rock. And so we know from the, the story about the crucifixion that Jesus is arrested in the garden late at night, taken, beaten and taken off to the, the, the courtyard of the high priest's house. Simon Peter follows him in that group sneaks into the courtyard. There's lots of hangers-on. There's servants. There's, there's, you know, and I can imagine Jesus over on a, a platform or dais, and there's, there's, he's being interrogated over here, and way off in the corner is a, a, a brazier of some kind, and, and Simon tries to be close. Maybe there's something he can do to help, and he, but he's hanging around the fire, keeping warm. And somebody... Different people, different points in that evening. They recognize him, or they question him as being a follower of Jesus. And, he said, and each time he denies it. Each time a little bit more forcefully, until a third time. I am, don't know the man! And Luke tells us that at that point, Jesus turned. You know, he's over here, being humiliated, being asked ridiculous questions, and he turns from the, the focus on him to look at Simon Peter. Right at him. And Simon looks up and sees him staring at him, realizes what he had done. The rooster crows, and Luke tells us Simon runs out into the night and weeps bitterly. So the, by the time we reach, come to this story about breakfast on the beach, Simon no longer Peter, is a bit at a loss as to his identity. The disciples have all seen Jesus now twice. They've been meeting together daily, we assume, waiting for, not, for what they're not quite sure. For one thing that Simon at least is certain of, the days of trekking through Galilee and with the crowds seeking healing and, and listening to his teaching, those days are over. Because that doesn't seem to be happening again. And certainly, his identity is Peter the Rock. Well, that's, that's done. He wasn't much of a rock. So what is he? Well, he has a boat. And he knows how to fish. So he says to the group, I'm going fishing. And six of them say, well, we'll come with you. Let's do that. Maybe they're bored. Maybe they're frustrated just as he is. Maybe they don't know what's happening next and that this is just some way of dealing with it. But even at this, this thing which he does know, he fails. They go out in the boat, Peter's boat, and they fish all night. He knows the lake, but they catch nothing. They try all the best spots. Nothing. They move to another spot. Nothing. They, they throw the net and haul, throw and haul, throw and haul over and over and over again all night long and catch nothing. It's dawn. 
I imagine them all sprawled about this boat, this empty boat. And it's just floating, drifting there on the, on the calm swells of the lake. They are near shore. And I imagine Peter's lounging in the bow, picking at his calluses. Maybe the purpose of the, of the night wasn't really to catch fish. Maybe it was just to occupy his mind over all the things that he's struggling with. Through hard work, you can just forget. Turn the brain off. Suddenly there's a, a voice calls out from the shore. And it, it, the voice says, Haven't you any fish? Friends, haven't you any fish? I mean, it's pretty obviously the boat is high in the water. If it had fish, it would be deeper in the water. Friends, haven't you any fish? And they, Peter, I can see him sort of lifting himself up to look through the mist at this figure he can't quite make out on the beach. They respond, no, no fish. We fished all night and haven't caught anything. And then there's this bizarre response. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and there will be some. This is nuts. Peter's a fisherman. He knows that he's been fishing all night. He knows all the best spots to fish in the, in the, the lake and he hasn't found any. How is just throwing the net on the right side of the boat going to catch anything? And he's about to tell this stranger on the beach this when all of a sudden he hears a splash on his right. And he looks, and some of the others have tossed the net back into the water. And instantly it's, it's surging with fish, all struggling to get out of the net. It's full, and they can't, they're trying to pull it into the boat, but it's so full they can't do it. The boat's going to swamp. Suddenly, Peter's brain is on fire. He remembers a memory from, you know, three years ago when something like this happened before. And, 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 and then he looks towards the beach and he sees the figure there and John says, it is the Lord. Well, it's his tipping point. It's his throw the butter knife on the floor point. Simon grabs his cloak as if he's going for a walk and leaps over the side of the boat into the water, the cold water of Galilee. And he surges through the water, chest deep, slipping and sliding on the seaweed on the bottom of the, of the lake, in the mud, <clears throat> to get to the shore, to get to his Lord and Master. The others are all there soon, too. They're all on the beach together. Jesus has prepared a fire. He's even roasted some fish. He's baked some bread on the hot stones. And he asks them to haul in the net, bring some more fish. And so Simon goes out and drags the net onto the shore. And they, they pick out some of the best ones. And they clean them and they roast them too. And it's, it's, it's amazing. It's like old times. He serves them breakfast. It's so basic. It's, there's just them, the friends with their Jesus, on the beach the lake. There are no crowds, nobody needing healing, or no Pharisees with their sneaky questions, no lurking soldiers wanting to arrest them. It's just them eating a meal together on the beach. Warm morning sunshine. It's like 
Old times, it's peace. It, it is the thing they thought they'd lost, perhaps. I can see Simon, after the meal is finished, he stoops down over the fire. He's still wet, trying to dry off his cloak and his clothes. The others are all standing above him, chatting and laughing, feeling the, the warmth of this great time together. Jesus sees him there too. Sees Simon warming himself by the fire, just as he had on that night in the courtyard before the cock crowed. Jesus speaks. He says, Simon, do you love me more than these? And Simon looks up and sees Jesus gesturing like this to encompass the group of friends who he's been fishing with, the boat, the great hall of fish, the lake, the whole life that Simon had known before Jesus called him Peter. Simon, squatting there by the fire, looks up and says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus holds him in his gaze and says, Feed my lambs. He pauses just for a moment and then asks a second time. A second question for a second denial. Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Simon slowly rises. Sparks tickling down his neck. He looks to his, his friends who he's been fishing with all night and they step away. There's no place to, to go. And he looks at Jesus and says, in stammers as he talks. And he says, yes, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, care for my sheep. I think then Jesus, it's in my imagination anyway, has mercy, mercifully turns his gaze away from the really troubled person standing in front of him. Looks out to the lake. That's how I imagine it. And he says a third time, a third question for a third denial. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon's no longer cold. A bead of sweat has appeared on his forehead, has trickled down his cheek. How can he answer this question? He, he knows what he did. He knows that he denied even knowing Jesus. He knows he failed as the rock. He failed to be the kind of person he was supposed to be. Maybe he doesn't even really know. Can I answer this question truthfully? And so he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus turns and says, feed my sheep. And at that, I imagine him holding out his arms, his face softening, and Simon stumbling towards him into his embrace. And that's when Jesus says, 
maybe holding him out at arm's length. When you were young, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted to go. But when you were old, others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And then he says, follow me. And the two turn and walk down the beach. I think what happened, even though it doesn't say, there's nothing in the words and the text that say that Simon was forgiven. But I think it's kind of like when the butter fell on my head, that Simon forgives himself through that process, through that series of questions. I don't think there's any question that Jesus forgave him. Jesus knew what he was going to do. Jesus loves him. The question is, does Simon love him? But the question for me is, why Peter the Rock? What did Jesus see in him to prompt him to call him Peter the Rock? Certainly he wasn't a rock like this. He, he wasn't strong or great. So I have my own theory, a couple of different points. One, I don't think that Jesus thought of the rock like that. He thought of rocks like us, weak, fractured, not good rocks, completely ordinary rocks. When they are held together, with the mortar of his grace and love through the the strength of the Holy Spirit, that's when we become strong. That's when he builds his church. The other thought is that we're so much like Simon. At least I feel like it. Lots of us identify with Simon. We stumble and fumble and bumble we, we say that we will do something and then fail to do it. We try on our own strength to be something that we aren't. We carry around all this baggage and, and guilt sometimes of, of what we have been, and we fail to let it go. And Jesus looks at us and says the same thing. Do you love me? And if the answer is yes, The command is to feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Serve. Serve your family. Serve your neighbors. Serve the people you work with. Serve the homeless guy on the street. Serve the the fellowship at the church. Serve everywhere you serve. Feed my sheep. I don't need you to be a big rock. I don't need I need you to feed my sheep. Care for each other. Make a difference in this world. Be my body. We don't know what Jesus talked to Simon about walking down that beach. But what we do know, according to Luke, is that a few weeks later, they're all gathered together in Jerusalem, and it's the the festival of Pentecost. And Simon, now Peter, now reformed as Peter, Peter the Rock, stands up and speaks passionately, confidently through the power of the Holy Spirit to this huge crowd of Jewish pilgrims from around the world. And we're told that 3,000 people believe that day. 
through the message that Peter presents. And they're baptized. And that's where our church begins. He was feeding sheep. So, the question remains for all of us, if we love him, feed his sheep. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us, regardless of how dumb and frustrating we are. That we look like we've got it, we understand it, and then we trip. And we lose sight of what it is you're calling us to be. We thank you for the grace and love and the transforming power of your love, of how you do turn us into something more than we are capable of being on our own if we, if we trust in you. And we commit ourselves to service. Take us to our homes, to our families, to our places of work, to our time with neighbors, to the various ministries you've set us in, those contexts. Bless us and guide us in the feeding of sheep. In Jesus' name, amen.